From the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This week, Vayigash. This week, Nahama Golan Barash discusses Vayigash. Nahama Golan Barash is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Nahama Golan Barash. In this week's Parsha, which is Vayigash, there is a curious reference to a woman who appears twice in the Torah for no apparent reason. In other words, we do not have the record of other daughters born to the twelve tribes, but for some reason, Serach, the daughter of Asher, is mentioned both this week in Vayigash and again in Parshat Pinchas in the Book of Numbers, when the catalog of those who went down to Egypt are mentioned as part of the counting of the nation. Almost no other women appear there, and the 600,000 enumerated are only men over the age of 21. In addition, Sarah joins Dina and Miriam as women who are mentioned but have no husband or sons associated with them. Unlike Dina and Miriam, however, Midrashic tradition does not supply Sarah with a family. Her role in Midrashic literature will be unique and reflect her singular status. In Genesis, Sarah is mentioned in chapter 46, verse 15. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore unto Jacob in Padan Aram with his daughter Dina. All the souls of his sons and his daughters were thirty and three. And the sons of God, Siphion and Haggai, Shuni and Etzbon, Eri and Arodi and Arieli. I'm sorry, it's verse 17. And the sons of Asher, Imna and Ishva and Ishvi and Beria, and Serach, their sister. And the sons of Beria, Hever and Malkiel. So just to, you know, rephrase what we saw, there are lists of the sons of Leah and then the sons of the concubines and some of the sons of Rachel and their sons. What stands out here is that um, Sarah, who is a granddaughter of Yaakov, is mentioned specifically for no apparent reason. Of course, Dina is mentioned as well, but she's the daughter of Leah and Yaakov and so has, uh, you know, it is worth mentioning her as part of the 12 tribes and their sister. In the book of Numbers, she is given her own verse and named as the daughter of Asher rather than as the sister of the sons of Asher. So what does that look like? Numbers 26 verses 44 to 47. So here again, we have the descendants of Asher according to their families, the family of the Yimnites and the Ishvi and the family of the Ishvites of Beria and so on and so forth. And then verse 46, and the name of the daughter of Asher was Serach. These are the families of the sons of Asher and so on and so forth. These references create a tantalizing gap in the narrative into which the Midrashic text enters, weaving together different narratives surrounding the identity of the woman called Serach, and three major storylines develop around her in the Tanakh that fill in some of the details in three major plots at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And we will see what I mean as we unpack uh, the Midrashic tradition. What does Serach mean? Well, we know that names in the Bible often have significance. In the Brown Driver Briggs Biblical Dictionary, the word Serach with a Samach, which is how it's written in Genesis, means to go free and unrestrained or to exceed. This will help the Midrashic authors think more deeply about her character and the development of Serach in the Midrash will reflect a woman who is unrestrained by husband and children and exceeds to, to much degree, you know, to, to, in many ways, um, the normal lifespan or the normal capabilities of human beings and women in particular. She is thus able to develop her special talents in a different direction. In this week's Parsha, the Midrash paints a beautiful picture depicting Sarah as the one chosen to tell Jacob that Joseph is alive when the brothers would return with the shocking but joyous tidings from Egypt. In this literary development, it is assumed that the young innocent girl 
will be the most adept at informing Jacob in a gentle, compassionate, and feminine way that will brace the shock and bring him happiness. In the Midrash HaGadol, Genesis 45:26, translation is by Aviva Zornberg in her book Genesis, The Beginning of Desire, on page 281, the Midrash writes as follows, The brothers said, If we tell him right away Joseph is alive, perhaps he will have a stroke. What did they do? They said to Sarah, daughter of Asher, Tell our father that Joseph is alive and he is in Egypt. What did she do? She waited till he was standing in prayer and then said in a tone of wonder, Joseph is in Egypt. There have been born on his knees Menashe and Ephraim. In the Hebrew, this actually rhymes. Yosef b'Mitzrayim, Yoldulo al-Birkayim, Menashe ve'Ephraim. Really quite beautiful. His heart failed while he was standing in prayer. When he finished his prayer, he saw the wagons. Immediately, the spirit of Jacob came back to life. This idea is further developed in another parallel midrash, where more detail and dialogue are added. In this depiction, she is called wise, although she is very young. And in addition, she plays a musical instrument, the violin. This is from Sefer Hayashar on Parshat Vayigash, uh, written around the 13th century. The Midrash Haggadol is uh, also around that time, 14th century. And so they went until they came near their homes, and they found Sarah Badasher coming towards them. And the girl was very good and wise, and knew how to play the violin. They called out to her. She came and kissed them, and they gave her a violin and said, Come before our father. Sit and play the violin and tell him these things. So she was ordered to go home, take the violin, and hurry and sit before Yaakov. She played well and gently said, My uncle Joseph is alive and governs all of Egypt. He is not dead. Notice how she's using the instrument, the music, in order to kind of play this song for her grandfather and more gently break it to him than direct conversation would uh, create. She continued to play and repeat what she had said. And Yaakov heard her and was pleased. And when he heard her twice and three times, he felt happy. And Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, was upon him. And he knew she spoke the truth. And Yaakov blessed Sarah for telling him. And he said to her, My daughter, death will not conquer you forever, for you brought my spirit alive. Please speak again, for your words make me happy. So by resurrecting the spirit of Jacob, Jacob then blesses her with some form of immortality. And um, and this idea, which is, is in the Midrash, it's not in the Tanakh, and, and there's no dialogue between Sarah and Jacob. I mean, this is all a Midrashic tradition, leads to other Midrashim that essentially um, tell us that Sarah never dies. She lives on and on and on. She has extreme longevity, and it's possible she goes up to heaven, uh, you know, without her body actually decomposing into the earth. We'll look at those towards the end. So in this first series of Midrashim, Sarah, because she is mentioned, because she's mentioned in Vayigash, becomes the channel through which this information is given to Yaakov. And uh, the, the picture, the poignant picture of a young girl playing a musical instrument and telling her bereaved grandfather information that's going to revive him uh, is, is actually quite lovely. And, um, you know, very much fitting for the Midrash trying to make room for, uh, for Sarah, who clearly is significant enough to be mentioned in the Torah. Okay, so that's one series of Midrashim. In several Midrashim, an even more interesting development around Sarah emerges. It involves the idea that a secret word was handed down from Jacob to Joseph, who then divulged it to Asher, who told it specifically to Sarah. This word would identify the Savior who would bring the children out of, of Israel, out of Egypt. 
To me, this explains again, perhaps, the midrashic disinterest in finding Sarah a husband. A woman would not be able to keep such a secret from her husband, and that, of course, could threaten its integrity and careful preservation. Because she acts alone, Sarah is as trustworthy as Asher, Joseph, and Jacob, who are the bearers of this tradition. In this way, Sarah continues the tradition of the six women at the beginning of the book of Exodus who are significant in the Moshe story. The two midwives, uh, Shifra and Pua, his mother, Yocheved, sister, Miriam, and the daughter of Paro, who ensure Moshe's survival from his birth to his infanthood and finally into adulthood. Sipora, his wife, then saves him from the Holy Destroyer in, um, in Exodus when she circumcises their son and the Destroyer releases what seems, releases Moses from his grip. And so, um, the beginning of, of Shemot really has six women who band together, uh, to save Moshe and Sarah is going to be part of this because she's going to help the people identify Moshe and accept him as savior. Sarah is the only one in possession of the secret word pakad, which means to attend to or pay attention to. It is a common enough biblical word, but what is interesting is that it's used in Genesis to describe God opening the wombs of barren women when he pays attention to them. So God noticing or paying attention to a woman, which is equivalent with his opening up her womb. In Exodus, the word will be significant when it is used twice, pakot yifkot, which is the way in which Joseph uses it with his brother at the end of Genesis before he dies. Only this usage will convince the people that God has seen their affliction and that he is metaphorically getting ready to birth the children of Israel whom he has chosen. Sarah joins the chain of women who become instrumental in facilitating that redemption. She connects the words said by Joseph in Genesis fifty twenty four. but God will surely take notice of you. Pakod yifkod etchem, says Joseph. And she connects that to the words said by Moshe in Exodus three sixteen. Pakod pakadeti etchem, as he foreshadows the coming of the redemption. So Joseph says, pakod yifkod etchem. Moshe, when he comes, says, pakod pakadeti etchem. Sarah is the repository of these words and the memory of a promise made to ancestors long ago, and thus she alone identifies Moshe as redeemer. She sees beyond the external signs Moshe performs with the snake and the leper's hand to something far deeper in the oral tradition she has inherited from Asher, who inherited it from Joseph, who inherited it from Yaakov, and so on. And she knows this reflects divine will. She becomes the bridge revealing the word of God by connecting the words of Joseph to the words of Moshe. Let's read a few of the Midrashim. In Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer 48, it's written as follows. Rabbi Eliezer says there are five letters that are doubled in the Torah, and all of them contain the secret of redemption. Kaf, kaf, mem, mem, nun, nun, pei, pei, and sadi, sadi. Those are five letters that, when doubled, have some sort of secret of redemption in them, through which our forefathers were redeemed from Egypt, as it says, Pakod pakadeti etchem. These letters, pei pei, were delivered solely to our father Abraham. So in this tradition, the pakod pakadeti or pakod yifkod goes back to Abraham, not just to Jacob. Avram then delivers them to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob delivers them to Joseph, Joseph delivers them to his brother Asher, and Asher, the son of Jacob, delivered the mystery of the redemption, writes Pirkei Drebi Eliezer, to Sarah, his daughter. Exodus Rabbah, uh, presents a similar tradition. 
And, uh, and as a result, um, Sarah really uh, becomes connected to the idea of uh, the redemption and the savior and, uh, uh, you know, kind of marking Moshe as trustworthy because she alone has the memory of the magical words, not magical, of course, but the redemptive words. Okay. That's the second series of um, Midrashim, in which here, um, Sarah is a repository of memory, memory of oral tradition. She is a continuation in the link of the covenantal uh, tradition, starting with Avram. And uh, really, that's quite singular, because we don't have women traditionally associated with that kind of tradition. Okay. The last series of Midrashim that I want to highlight uh, have to do, again, it's going to be a connection between Moshe and Joseph, and Sarah will be instrumental in that connection as well. This has to do with uh, Joseph's bones. He has asked his brothers at the end of um, Breshit, again, where he said, Pakod yifkod etchem, right? God is going to surely choose you, redeem you, remember you. And he asked that his bones be taken out of Egypt. And we know in Shemot, uh, Exodus 13, 19, Moshe took the bones of Joseph. So one of the questions the Midrash has is, well, how did he know where the bones were? It's been many years, hundreds of years, in fact. How did he know where the bones were? So listen to this Midrash. In the Mechilta Dorbi Yishmael, it's actually a very early Midrash. We saw some Midrashim from the early Middle Ages. This is uh, from the rabbinic period, uh, 200 CE, uh, probably written down at the end of the 4th century CE. In Exodus, it is written, and Moshe took the bones of Joseph with him. How did Moshe know where Joseph was buried? Sarah Badasher remained from that generation, and she showed him Joseph's burial place. She said, this is where they put him. The Egyptians made him a metal cask and sunk him in the Nile. This midrash fills in the narrative beautifully with two parallel pieces of information. The Egyptians did not want to give up Joseph's body, so they sunk it in a metal casket into the Nile, which of course is the site of so many of the plagues as a result of their oppression of Joseph's descendants. In addition, and most significant, Moshe could not have known where Joseph was buried, unless someone from that generation remembered the exact spot. Sarah, who has been promised longevity, from a blessing given to her by Jacob when she tells him that Joseph is alive, becomes the bridge between the generation that went down to Egypt and the generation that went out of Egypt, even though she would have had to live for several hundred years. The Babylonian Talmud expands on that tradition in um, Tractate Sota 13a. It is related that Sarah, daughter of Asher, was a survivor of that generation. Moshe went to her and asked, do you know where Joseph is buried? She answered him, the Egyptians made a metal coffin for him, which they fixed in the Nile. Moshe went and took a tablet of gold on which he engraved the Tetragrammaton, threw it into the Nile, stood on the back of the Nile, and exclaimed, Joseph, Joseph, the time has arrived, which the Holy One, blessed be he, swore I will deliver you. Immediately, Joseph's coffin flooded to the top. In the earlier version, in the Mechilta, there's no dialogue. There is kind of a motion where she points to the burial place. In the Talmudic version, Moshe approaches Sarah and asks her for help. She comes more cl- clearly into focus as a wise woman that Moshe seeks out when the time comes to take the bones out of Egypt. In a third Midrashic tradition, this is in what's called the Tibet Marcha, Samaritan writings from the 4th century CE, which also reflect uh, rabbinic tradition. The story goes as follows. Sarah, the daughter of Asher, went hurrying out to them. There is, uh, I will reveal to you what this secret is. At once they surrounded her and brought her to the great prophet Moshe. And she basically said to them, hear from me this thing that you seek. Praise to those who remembered my bed, Joseph, though you have forgotten him. For had not the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire stood still, you would have departed and he would have been left in Egypt. 
I remember the day that he died and caused the whole people to swear that they would bring his bones up from there with them. The great prophet Moses then said, Worthy are you, Sarah, wisest of women. From this day on will your greatness be told. And Sarah went with all the tribe of Ephraim around her, and Moshe and Aaron went after them until she came to the place where he was hidden. And so uh, the tribe of Ephraim, of course, um, are, are the tribe of Joseph, and, and they're most interested in finding his body. But Sarah rebukes them. She says, you are ready to go. If God had not stood still, essentially, the pillar of cloud and fire, to wait, then you would have left Egypt without him. How can that be? And Moshe then praises her for being the wisest of women. So um, she's not only the repository of memory here, she's the one who reminds Moshe of the oath made to, to Joseph. It is only due to Sarah that Joseph's bones go out of Egypt. Um, and uh, and as a result, this really even develops further the centrality of her character in, uh, in redemption and in um, transmission past, present, and future. Rav Soloveitchik, in a eulogy he wrote for by Chaim Heller, you can find it online, I found it on Sfaria. Why was it crucial that Sarah play a role in the redemption? And he says something I think very beautiful. The generation of the Exodus witnessed signs and wonders on an unprecedented scale. Such excitement could easily lead to a sense that their generation represents true religious greatness and that nothing that came beforehand really matters. Yet this conclusion is false. Every generation, irrespective of its accomplishments, needs to turn to its elders for counsel and wisdom. The living example of someone who knew Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, was an invaluable resource for the generation of redemption. Sarah plays a seminal role, as we have mentioned several times in this podcast, in bridging past, present, and future. The Exodus is not a yesh mayayin, something out of nothing. It is the continuation of a covenant that started with Abraham and continued on through his children and grandchildren. It's important, wrote Rav Soloveitchik, that this generation being born out of slavery into nationhood recognize that they are both unique, as is every generation, but also something much bigger than a single moment in history. This unusual capacity uh, of Sarah to serve both past, present, and future is transmitted in a truly awesome midrash, which continues to assume her immortality. Sarah participates in a conversation in Rabbi Yochanan's Beit Midrash. In the Psikta de Rav Kahana, it's written as follows. Then from the teacher's seat, Rabbi Yochanan sought to explain just how the waters of the Red Sea became a wall for Israel. Even as Rabbi Yochanan was explaining that the wall of water looked like a lattice, Sarah, the daughter of Asher, appeared and said, I was there, I was there, and the water was not as a net, but as transparent windows. In this Midrashic vignette, Rabbi Yochanan is describing the splitting of the Red Sea, and Sarah appears and tells him what it was really like. In a male-based academy, the presence of a woman capable of comprehending and participating in the agadic discussion is remarkable. But I don't think it's any more remarkable than Sarah being given the awesome task of telling Jacob that Joseph is alive, or Sarah being the repository of the word of redemption, or Sarah appearing again in a very male-based environment to tell Moshe to scold him, to give Musar, to remind him about the bones of Joseph. So in this vignette, Sarah becomes the woman in the academy um, who is able to comprehend and participate, but even more centrally, um, she remembers. Her voice is not 
Uh, she's listening to the Torah and suddenly interjects when she recognizes the information is incorrect. Her voice is not only heard, it becomes necessary for everyone to listen to her, for she holds the key to passing on this oral tradition based on someone who was there. She is not only the repository of memory for Moshe and the children of Israel, she bears within her the true manifestation of oral tradition so necessary for the survival of Torah. And um, it's not surprising then that in an article written by Moshe Reis, uh, published in the Jewish Bible Quarterly, he writes that the Persian Jews of the city of Isfahan believed that Sarah Badasher actually lived among them until she died in a great fire in their synagogue in the 12th century CE. So it's it's interesting. They claim um, the account of her death, but she would have lived at this point thousands of years. The synagogue and its successors were subsequently known as the synagogue of Sarah Badasher. Um, until the end of the 19th century, there was a tombstone marking her final resting place. Uh, in the Iranian exile, Jews were accustomed to prostrate themselves at the gravestone of Sarah, uh, kind of like the tomb of Rachel. And, uh, and really, um, she remains immortalized uh, in Midrashic tradition and, um, and based on what Moshe Reis wrote, also in various communities. She becomes a mythical figure um, akin to Eliyahu Navi, and in some ways softer, more feminine, wiser, more compassionate than Eliyahu appears in the Tanakh literature. Have a Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Nechama. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.